Hello, brothers and sisters. This is Pastor Taylor. I'd be grateful if you'd grab a Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24. I'm going to be doing some teaching on this passage. Earlier today, I did a homily on this text, but uh, Pastor John and I decided over these last couple weeks that we wanted to give kind of shorter teachings on Zoom because there's only so much capacity for a long teaching in that format, but then to kind of go back to these passages and uh, just dig a little bit deeper. So I'm grateful that you've decided to join me. Um, I'm just going to be walking through the text, looking at some of my handwritten notes. I got a big stack of books next to me that I've been enjoying studying uh, as I've been preparing for this teaching. And uh, so every once in a while I might pause and uh, and pull out a quote from one of them for you. But um, for the most part, I'll just be kind of going off, off the cuff here. So um, before we get started, let me just say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And I pray that as I read it aloud now and dig into it and consider some of the questions even that um, people at Incarnation um, were texting and emailing in today, um, that you would shine your light, uh, answer our questions uh, as you see fit and as is best for us, and uh, Lord, um, do guide our path through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, yeah, so um, as, as we come to Genesis uh, 3.8, just to say a couple of introductory words, um, this passage is commonly referred to as the curse. So if 1 through 7 is the fall, this is the resulting curse, what happened from the fall. Now, it's worth noting that um, Adam and Eve themselves are never actually cursed in this passage. Um, they are punished, but it never says that they are cursed. So the serpent is cursed. We see that in uh, verse 14. The one that God said earlier in this chapter is um, the craftiest of all the animals. Here it says that he is cursed above all livestock. So the most crafty is now the most cursed. And then also we see that um, the ground is cursed in verse 17. Uh, but Adam and Eve, though punished, are never actually cursed. I think another thing um, to mention, just because we were wrestling about this in our breakout group, we're wrestling with this question, how could uh, two perfect creatures created in the image of God be led into sin? How is that possible if they were perfect? And I think that's a that's a mysterious question that's kind of baffled theologians for centuries. And um, I think there's a couple of important things to just say about that. Um, I think one is to note that um, their sin results um, not from any fault in God's design or anything um, wrong with their nature. It actually results from a misuse of their freedom on one hand and Satan, the tempter, drawing them into a bent use of that gift of freedom. Christianity is not a dualistic religion uh, where there's an uh, equal and opposite good and evil. The devil himself is a fallen angel. He's nothing but a creature. He's not God's equal and opposite. Um, so he's certainly evil. 
and uh, from the scriptures, he seems to be um, utterly irredeemable. Um, he's reached that state, but um, he's not God's equal. And so in Christianity, because we're not dualistic like uh, Zoroastrianism or, or many other faiths, um, we actually believe um, that good and love have an ultimacy that evil does not. Evil does not have an independent existence. It's parasitic on good. And so um, uh, the the object of the devil is to bend what is good. Um, the, the devil can't create any of his own pleasures. He can only bend the ones that God has created. And so you could think of something like human sexuality and you could say, hey, that is actually good. It's very good. Um, but what makes it evil is the bent use of our sexuality in a way that God did not ordain. Um, so uh, the fall of man has to do with um, the bending of God's good design. Now that might not answer all of our questions, um, and there's still a lot of mystery there, but hopefully we've scratched the surface a little bit. All right, let's dive into this passage, beginning in verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I love this image of the Lord walking in the garden, and uh, it's it's a familiar image. It's a pleasant image, um, but uh, I think what it communicates in part is that um, nothing has changed for God. God is still who he was before the fall. What's changed is our relationship to God. And so the rest of verse 8 says, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they're ashamed. They're hiding themselves. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man. So the Lord was not willing to allow them to remain in that state of hiding. He comes to confront them. And, uh, you know, what's going on here is um, not that the Lord um, doesn't actually know or doesn't actually have the information. It's kind of like... Um, when a parent is confronting their child with something they know their child has done, uh, but they want their child to own up to it and confess it with their own mouth. One scholar, uh, Gordon Wenham, writes, God's questions were designed to elicit confessions, not information. He knew perfectly well what they had done. So the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, somebody asked this question today, um, noticing that the Lord God called to the man, not to the man and woman together, but to the man. In fact, the Hebrew uh, word for you here is singular. Uh, and so the question was asked, why does God uh, confront just the man here? And I think there's a variety of reasons that we can give for that. Um, we might say, well, it was um, the man who actually received the original command in Genesis 2 not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That actually wasn't commanded directly to Eve. Now, she uh, obviously knew about it, um, either from the man or, or the Lord repeated it to her later. But you could say, well, he's confronting the man because the man's the one who actually received it. Another reason given is um, there does seem to be this leadership role 
that man has uh, in the relationship even before the fall. And so he he names woman. It's an exercise of dominion. The woman's created as a helper fit for him. In fact, the New Testament passages that talk about male headship uh, don't talk about it in regards to the fall. They talk about it in regards to the pre-fallen creation. So uh, it's perhaps the case that um, God is confronting the man because he holds him in his leadership role primarily responsible. Pope John Paul II maintains that men have, quote, a special responsibility to restore the balance of love in the male-female relationship. It's as if it depended more on him whether the balance is kept or violated or even if it has already been violated Reestablished. That seems to be what's going on here. Now, the man answers in verse 10, and he said to God, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, uh, I asked this question in my homily where does all this fear come from? Right? The last that we heard about uh, Adam and Eve before the fall. In Genesis 2, verse 25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. They were living their lives completely vulnerable, vulnerably before the eyes of God. There was complete trust in his intentions, 100%. Um, but somehow fear and doubt have entered the picture. And God says to him in verse 11, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now here I don't think the problem is that Adam and Eve somehow have this new information. Um, but what's going on here is God is kind of saying, Who took away your innocence? Who made you experience this need for clothing? Where did that come from? So this knowledge of evil that they got from the tree was not um, like the kind of knowledge you get from an education. It's the kind of knowledge that you get um, when you become participants from the inside. They had participated with evil and had come to know it in that way. C.S. Lewis um, is famous for saying that, um, that evil men are always surprised to find that good men can be clever. And I think that's true. I don't think that we, our image of Jesus, for example, who was like us in every way but without sin, I don't think our image of Jesus should be one where we think of him as somehow being naive of evil uh, just because he hasn't experienced it from uh, kind of firsthand experience. Uh, C.S. Lewis makes the point that you don't know how strong the current is uh, unless you're swimming against it. As long as you're swimming with the current, you never really know um, the kind of the strength and the full power of evil. Jesus, by resisting evil, uh, knows its full power far more than uh, us in our disobedience ever could. So now we come to verse 12 and 13. Um, where um, the man and the woman uh, give their responses to the Lord. Um, a lot of times on verse 12, we emphasize um, this kind of blame game that ensues between uh, the man and the woman. But notice that the man begins actually by accusing God. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. 
and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the man starts off the whole exchange by blaming God. The 6th century monk Dorotheos of Gaza writes, When a man has not the guts to accuse himself, he does not scruple to accuse God himself. And that's so true. We still do this today. I mentioned this in the homily. We'll fly off the handle in anger and uh, we'll essentially say to God, either consciously or subconsciously, yeah, but it's because of this this husband that you gave to be with me. Or we'll look at pornography and we'll say, yeah, but it's because of these bodily urges that you gave to me. Or we won't be willing to trust God with money again. And we'll say, it's all because of these circumstances that you gave to me. And in all these ways, we adopt the serpent's perspective and we essentially say, it's you, God. You're the one who's in the wrong, even though it's us who are misusing the gift of our freedom sinning against God and sinning against each other. Now let's take a moment to look at the three judgments that God dishes out. First to the serpent, then to the woman, and then to Adam. In verses 14 and 15, we see um, his judgment of the serpent. And in each of these cases, notice that there's a correspondence between the way um, that the individual committed sin and the corresponding judgment. So because the serpent sinned by exalting himself, God mandates his low-to-the-ground humility. And uh, because he sought the death of man, man will ultimately be the death of him. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Again, the word offspring is singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, in this verse 15, um, oftentimes called the first promise of the gospel or the proto-evangelion. So it's this promise that one day uh, the long-awaited offspring of, of the woman, singular, um, will um, uh, uh, destroy the works of the evil one. Um, Jesus said that that's the reason why he came, to destroy the works of the devil. Um, but he'll do it at cost to himself. And so that's where this idea of you shall bruise his head, he shall bruise your head, um, but you shall bruise his heel, um, which obviously has to do with Jesus's suffering and crucifixion. Now, that might sound like kind of like a fanciful interpretation, but interestingly, uh, even the early Jews saw in this verse a messianic promise. In fact, in some of my research, I, I saw that um, some of the earliest commentary that we have on this text back from the 3rd century BC um, by some Jewish teachers at the time actually interpreted this test, text in a messianic way. So Christians are not alone in that way. Um, all right, let's move on to what he says to the woman. Verse 16, and to the woman he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So um, because the woman ate the forbidden fr fruit, her own fruitfulness shall become pained. And because she ruled over her husband, he shall rule over her. 
Um, I do like the ESV's translation of this verse. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Sometimes that verse is translated, your desire will be for your husband. This same phrase in Hebrew is used in the very next chapter when God is speaking to Cain in Genesis 4 verse 7. He says, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So I think this is a good translation. Uh, the point in the text is not that uh, somehow a man just has this desire to rule over woman and woman has no desire to rule over man. No, there's actually a power struggle. Uh, they butt heads. Uh, and, of course, man wins out in that exchange down through history, uh, not least because man has more physical strength. Now, it's important to note that man is not justified in enforcing his physical strength, enforcing his domineering on woman from a Christian perspective. These curses are descriptive, not prescriptive. We're not meant to follow them as commands. They are descriptions of what life will be like after original sin. Um, but they're not things that we need to adhere to like commands. So uh, when it says that uh, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, a woman is not disobeying God um, when she gets an epidural. Um, or when it says, when he says to the man that his work um, will turn into toil, he's not saying that it's a sin uh, if you begin to use a tractor to till the ground uh, rather than using your own arms. So this passage should never be used as justification from a Christian perspective of uh, for male domination. I do believe that male headship is biblical. It's a biblical principle. Male leadership, a godly response, taking godly responsibility uh, for your wife, for the protection of your family, uh, for leadership. Um, but that leadership is cruciform. It's Jesus-shaped. We're not supposed to, as Christians, domineer over one another, man over woman, or woman over man, the way that the world tries to do these things. Jesus criticizes his kind of power-hungry disciples, if you remember, um, when they asked to sit one at his right and other, the other at his left. He says, look, this is the way that the Gentiles do things. They lord it over one another, not so with you. And, and instead, whoever wants to be great must become the least, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we shouldn't be using this phrase, husband, um, that he shall rule over you, as any justification for domineering behavior on our part. Our desire is to lean into the kingdom, not to fall back uh, to the curse. Now, that being said, it is clear from this passage that the Lord is disappointed with Adam's leadership. We see that in verse 17. And he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree. Now, the problem is not Adam listening to the voice of his wife when she's trying to say something good and godly to him. The problem is that he listened to her voice and allowed her to lead their family unit into sin. And he just, as John pointed out last week, just stood passively by. We learn in Genesis 3 
verse uh, 6, that uh, after the woman ate, uh, she gave some to her husband who was with her, it says, and he ate. So Adam was standing there with Eve all along this entire time that she's having this conversation with this serpent. And at no point does he protect. At no point does he interject. And when his wife falls into sin, he doesn't stand firm in the command of God. Instead, he just lets her lead him off a cliff as well. And that's not supposed to be the way that a man's leadership is meant to function. The way that it's meant to function is spelled out for us in the most famous passage on this topic. It comes from the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. It says, husbands, starting on verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So men, uh, are, their leadership is supposed to be sacrificial. 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So our concern should be for the sanctification of our wife, the sanctification of our family. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So in a sense, Paul is saying that men have a special responsibility before God on judgment day to say, I'm presenting my wife, I'm presenting my kids, um, and I'm presenting them sanctified before you. Of course, a wife has responsibility to care for her husband as her brother in Christ to encourage him in his walk as well. But I do believe on that last day, the Lord is going to look to the man and say, where were you, Adam? Now, even with this um, Christ-shaped love at the center of uh, male headship, some people are still very uncomfortable with this or, or think maybe this is um, just something that's culture-bound. It's not something that should um, go down to our time. But I've said it in sermons past, you know, whenever the biblical authors wish to point us to universal truth, truth, which is not culturally contingent, they always root their theology uh, either in the nature of God and who God is in creation or in how God intended things to be from the beginning or in the eschaton, in God's renewal of all things through Christ's second coming. And interestingly, when it comes to male headship and male leadership, um, I find it incredibly significant, for example, that the Apostle, the Apostle Paul references all three. So in 1 Corinthians 11.3, he ties male headship to the relational nature of God. He says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, I've pointed out in the past that uh, just as we believe in the equality of the Father and the Son. This this is not a text against male-female equality, it, but it's saying something about roles. So Paul ties uh, male headship to the nature of God. Then in 1 Timothy uh, 2.13, Paul ties male headship to pre-fallen creation. He says, for man was formed first, then Eve. And only secondarily does he tie it to the fall and to what happened there. And then, of course, in this most famous passage that we just looked at from Ephesians 5, he ties it to Jesus' second coming. J.I. Packer, the general editor of our ACNA Catechism, summarizes the matter in this way. He says, The man-woman relationship is intrinsically non-reversible. 
This is part of the reality of creation, a given fact that nothing will change. Certainly, redemption will not change it, for grace restores nature, not abolishes it. So that's why God is confronting Adam with his lack of leadership in this passage. But he does more than that. He also um, issues his own um, words of punishment and judgment to Adam. He says in verses 17 through 19, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. And then here's the worst part, the death sentence, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So because the man failed in his God-given vocation to work and keep the garden, as we saw in Genesis 2, his work will now become toilsome. And because he failed to heed the Lord's warning, the Lord told him that if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good, of, of good and evil, he will surely die. Um, he will experience that not just spirit, spiritually, as John explained last week, but also physically. So this is the cataclysmic bad news of this passage. And if it would have stopped there, God still would have been just in his judgments. But we see this pattern in Genesis that whenever God brings judgment, there's also this um, mitigation of the judgment. So, um, you know, for example, when uh, when God pronounces judgment on Cain, he also gives uh, he also mitigates that judgment by giving him this mark um, so that no one is able to destroy Cain. Or when he sees that the world has become exceedingly evil in uh, Genesis chapter 6, he provides Noah and his family as a way of preserving the human race. Well, that, that kind of mitigation happens in this passage as well. In verse 21, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, this is significant because um, it would signify the first um, sacrifice of an animal for the sake of covering human shame. Now, of course, there's actually nothing wrong in and of itself with uh, human nakedness. Um, but the problem is, is that after sin, we can no longer be trusted with, pure, with the pure nakedness of one another. In his book, Theology of the Body for Beginners, Christopher West writes, A woman does not feel the need to cover her body when she's alone in the shower. But if a strange man bursts into the bathroom, she would. Why? John Paul II proposes that shame in this sense is a form of self-defense against being treated as an object for sexual use. West goes on and says, quote, Therefore, the woman covers her body not because it's bad or shameful. She covers her body because it's good, very good, and she fears that her goodness might be violated. Now, ultimately, uh, this idea of covering human shame and human sin with sacrifice will find its fulfillment in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that theme is introduced here. I even think there's an element of hope in verse 20 when it says the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Uh, of course, he named her woman before the fall and then he gives her 
a proper name after the fall eve but um this this part of the passage actually seems hopeful because even after uh, he's told of the death penalty he's still anticipating their life together um, many bible scholars say that Adam naming his wife Eve here um, seems to be an act of faith. It seems to be hopeful. And uh, this name that is given to her is a hopeful name. She will become the mother of all living. Now, let's look at these last few verses, because I think the mitigation of God's judgment continues here. In verses 22 and on, it says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing of good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat of it and live forever. And then he stops sort of mid-thought because it's so urgent that he take action. Uh, And it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, this sounds like judgment, and in a sense it is. So why am I saying that it's a mitigation? It's because God realized immediately um, that he could not have man and woman continue on forever in the state that they're in carrying on this body of death, this power struggle between them, the sense of alienation from God, from themselves, from each other, from the land. This is not the kind of eternal life that God had in mind. And so uh, he ends up forbidding them from any future eating from the tree of life. Now, uh, as John pointed out last week, um, there's no... um, uh, evidence that they were forbidden to eat from the tree of life prior to the fall. There was only one tree they weren't allowed to eat from, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So presumably they were able to eat from the tree of life before. Now, many Bible scholars draw the implication from this, uh, including even John Calvin, that human beings were not created immortal in their own nature that our ongoing life has to be maintained by God, by our participation in God. And therefore, um, before God gives us the gift of eternal life, he wants a chance to reverse the curse. He wants to redeem us. He wants to give us his Holy Spirit and begin to make us holy. Uh, Even as the beautiful hymn that... um, that Lucy sang for us today, Rock of Ages. He wants to be of sin, the double cure, save from wrath and make us pure. So he wants to clothe us with the righteousness of Christ so that we'll no longer be objects of judgment, but he also wants to make us pure by his Holy Spirit so that when we have eternal life, we'll be the kinds of creatures that he intended for us to be. Now, we know that the ultimate way that we see mercy triumphing over judgment is in the fullness of time when God reveals the mystery of the gospel in Christ. That's when this passage really comes to the fullness and the the sort of uh, seeds um, uh, of grace that we see here that are that are only sort of in embryonic form are then fully grown. And so we need to always read these passages in light of Christ. Uh, We see uh, in Christ, for example, just as I was teaching to the children today, um, that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, interestingly, uh, the curtain itself, what it was decorated with was embroidered cherubim. 
And so it was the cherubim that were to guard human beings from entering into the most holy place in the temple. The high priest could only come there, and even then, only once a year. So the cherubim were still standing guard, still making it so that we weren't allowed to be invited back into God's space, into God's home. And through Christ, we know that the temple... Uh, We know that the curtain has been torn and that the cherubim no longer stand guard. We're invited back into Eden to live with God forever. And we see mercy triumphing over judgment in the fact that, as Galatians 3 puts it, Christ redeemed us from the curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. So when we revisit these verses of judgment upon Adam in verses 17 through 19, and we look at them through the prism of Christ, they look completely different because they've been wrapped into our salvation. So the curse, the pain, the thorns and thistles, the sweat, even death, we see all these things at work in our salvation because it was Christ who became a curse. It was he who bore our pain. The Lord of heaven wore a crown of thorns and thistles. It was he who sweated, even blood, and was ultimately laid in the dust of death. And as I pointed out this morning in the homily, given such a glorious and self-giving salvation, we, we no longer have to have any doubts about the heart and character of God. Does he have good will for us? That question has been definitively answered. So as I did this morning, uh, I want to close this teaching by quoting at length um, from Christopher West from Theology of the Body. Such a beautiful quote, and it's so true. We really need to learn to look at the nature of God ultimately through the prism of Christ, because that's where all of Scripture is leading Christopher West says this, In essence, Christ's life proclaims, You don't believe God loves you. Let me stretch out my arms and show you how much God loves you. You don't believe that God is a gift? This is my body given for you. Luke twenty-two nineteen. You think God wants to keep you from life? I will offer myself so that my life's blood can give you life to the full. John 10.10 You thought God was a tyrant, a slave driver? I will take the form of a slave. Philippians 2.7 I will let you lord it over me to demonstrate that God has no desire to lord it over you. Matthew 20.28 You thought God would whip your back if you gave him the chance? I will let you whip my back to demonstrate that God has no desire to whip yours. I have not come to condemn you, but to save you. John 3, 17, I have not come to enslave you, but to set you free. Galatians 5, 1, stop persisting in your unbelief. Repent and believe the good news. Amen. And that's not just the good news of what God has done for us in his promise to trample the head of the serpent in verse 15 or to cover us with his own righteousness with the sacrifice of his only son verse 21 or to um, tear the the curtain in the temple from top to bottom the cherub embroidered curtain that kept us out of his space and and allows us to come back in it's not just what christ has done for us that is the good news 
but it's the good news of who Christ reveals God to be in his very nature. And so through Christ we see God. He's the image of the invisible God, all the fullness of God in human form, the exact representation of his being, the word made flesh. Amen.